Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman, director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy. And with me, as always, is our managing director, Chris Bean. As always. <laughs> second episode. I'm still here. We are fortunate today to hear from uh, Doug Kreider. Uh, Doug is a professor of political science. Doug, Doug is a perfect person to talk to about this because he is uh, one of the country's foremost scholars on congressional investigations. And so what a what a great person to have around at this particular time. Now, I thought we should start by talking today about how congressional investigations might fit uh, more generally into checks and balances and separation of powers. And uh, maybe it would be good to start, Chris, by just kind of defining for people what the difference is between separation of powers and checks and balances and how those two things fit together. What's your understanding of it as a non-political scientist? Yeah. Well, <laughs> as um, if you uh, went, took a civics class in America, mm -hmm. uh, you've probably heard those terms, right? And um, the idea of uh, both... Are, there's a common thread to both that I think you, you know you'd probably be better at, at articulating than I am. But the argument is that um, uh, authority is dangerous if it's not checked. If it's if, if that that human beings are um, looking for power, and they'll take it as far as they can. And the only way to stop that is to uh, countervail it with, with other sources of power. Right. If men were angels, government would not be necessary. And because that's not true, we need not only government, but we need um, uh, the same kind of checks on authority that we put on other, other, everybody else. Right. And so each had to have significant powers mm -hmm. and, and to a certain extent some unique powers, even though they also needed to, in effect, share powers to really get anything done. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to pass... Uh, important to, well, to pass legislation, you would have to have Congress pass it, the president would have to sign it, and uh, of course the Supreme Court could invalidate it. Right. You know, if you were taking your AP test, this would be a really good, good podcast <laughs> to listen to. <laughs> so Congress needs to have the power to oversee what's going on in the executive branch, or what's come to be called oversight. Right. And, and perhaps Doug will speak to this, uh, that uh, Congress is has come to take its power of oversight seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes in different forms. You know, oversight can be uh, conducted through hearings. It can be conducted through audits. It'd be conducted in a, in a variety of different ways. And investigations are one form of this oversight where they are overseeing what it is that the executive branch is doing. And so it's more than just what we think of as traditional oversight, uh, which is Congress essentially overseeing what the executive branch is doing and involves an investigation into the into what a foreign power has been up to. Doug's book uh, speaks to the difference between uh, congressional oversight in mm -hmm. a um, divided government and one in a um, uni unified government. And he also um, investigates the difference between a investigations in a uh, you know 
fairly benign partisan environment and a hyper-partisan environment. And clearly right now what we have is a unified government and a very hyper-partisan government or a partisan climate. And so the features of these investigations, the likely pro production of these investigations are all um, open for those very reasons. And I think that is one of the reasons why uh, people who are paying attention to this, just, just regular citizens, are so um, fretful, I guess is the word, because they just they they know that things are are very different, yeah. And and that um, you know the way people are, the way partisans are engaging this investigative process um, makes one makes one wonder about just how productive it can possibly be. And so what I'm afraid happens with these investigations is Democrats hear what they want to hear and Republicans hear what they want to hear. I'm not sure that there's any consistent message that's getting out to the American public. Yeah, and large. why should um, investigations be any different from any other dimension of American political life, right? Right, yeah. You know, it, it reflects this hyper-partisanship, it reflects this tribalism, and it um, is is designed, right, to, um, to speak to your constituency, not to speak to Americans in general. We're, we're really good at just riffing on this stuff, but we have an expert here who is actually, um, you know, informed and has done research on this issue, so we should bring this person in. Jenna is coming in. She's going to do an interview with uh, Doug Kreiner, who is the author of Investigating the President, Congressional Checks on the Unilateral Presidency. Doug Kreiner, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so we're talking today about um, congressional investigations, and I think a lot of people um, who, who listen to this podcast are, you know, fairly savvy news consumers, maybe are used to seeing Adam Schiff and Trey Gowdy and, you know, folks like that from these committees on TV or maybe following them on Twitter, but might not necessarily know exactly what those committees are that, that they're representing. So what role do these congressional um, investigative committees play in, in our democracy? Sure. So uh, a lot of times we talk about the different powers of the presidency that aren't in Article 2. Right? Nowhere in Article 2 will you find the power to issue an executive order. Uh, nowhere will you find the power to issue a national security decision directive to eavesdrop on the electronic communications of American citizens. Uh, we don't think too much about unenumerated powers of Congress, but investigations are one of them. Uh, so the debate over whether or not Congress can do this goes all the way back to the Washington administration. There was a, a massacre uh, and of military forces by Indians, and Congress has this internal debate. Should we investigate the president and the administration, uh, or is this a violation of separation of powers? And ultimately, they decided, no, we can. Uh, and the administration tried to figure out whether they should comply, and ultimately, they decided that they should. And it sort of established this precedent that over time was codified by the Supreme Court that Congress has the power to superintend any actor in the executive branch uh, as long as it's pursuant to some sort of legislative function. So basically, if you've appropriated money for something, uh, you have the, the power to sort of oversee the way in which it's being used. And so there are specific committees that are a little more investigative in function, but any committee uh, can hold an, uh, an investigation on some element of policy or politics that's within their substantive purview. 
Your research um, showed that there were 12,000 days of, of these um, investigative hearings, or 32 years if you kind of put it all together. So um, to, to put the question really simply, what the heck were they doing during all those, all those days and, and hours? Yeah, so sometimes they're listening to themselves talk. Uh, we often sort of deride when we watch these things, right, that it's supposedly questions, and it's mainly the member talking for most of their time, and they get a little bit of response uh, from the, the witnesses. But I think that's almost exactly what they're, what they're for, right? These are sort of made-for-TV events that are about shining a light on some aspect of politics or policy that the president would prefer there's no light shown on. Uh, so these types of investigations have been on the full gamut of policies. Sometimes they have gone right after the president himself. Other times it's focused on key members of the administration. Uh, other investigations can be more mundane, but still potentially quite important, looking at uh, contracting procedures in the DOD, for instance, and whether or not the taxpayers are actually getting uh, the bang for the buck that they should. So it really does span the gamut of, of uh, political actions. And so you, you mentioned the, the kind of made for TV. I think we've all heard about, you know, um, Hillary Clinton and the, you know, um, I think it was like 11 hour Benghazi hearing and, you know, those, those sorts of things. And that's, that's certainly one, one element. But in terms of actual muscle or actual authority, how much leeway do these committees have? Well, committees have very significant leeway uh, to investigate almost anything they want which is why the Benghazi investigation is a great example, right? It was the administration's initial response and whether they lied about what triggered it, right, to try and cover up the fact that Obama's policies in the Middle East are failing. And then it evolved into uh, something else and something else and something else. And lo and behold, someone stumbles across by sheer accident that Hillary Clinton used a private email server. Uh, and so email gate is a direct... Uh, consequence of Benghazi, uh, and they have every right to do it. The Supreme Court has been very generous in the latitude that it's granted Congress. So uh, one of the only cases that sort of pushed back and tried to limit this power uh, is back in the McCarthy days, uh, Watkins versus the United States, where uh, a labor organizer basically refused to answer Joe McCarthy's questions to name names. Uh, and said that Congress has no right to go after private individuals, uh, and the courts agreed. It said it has to be something pursuant to Congress's legislative power, but aside from that, uh, they can cause misery for any actor in the executive branch in any way that they want, and it's totally constitutional. Yeah. So can you um, give us give us some examples of when those checks by the legislative to the executive have, have been successful? So back in the 1970s, we're having a, a policy debate that's immediately relevant to what's going on right now, right? Uh, this is the Church Committee, uh, which was founded to investigate abuse in the intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Nunez memo alleges mm -hmm. abuse in the intelligence agencies, uh, specifically with respect to something called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act mm -hmm. of 1978. So the Church Committee is run by basically Frank Church, who takes on all the costs of this investigation because he wants to run for president and he wants to raise his profile. And so he uh, pays a lot of the institutional costs to get it off the ground, to keep it going. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, unmaskings of, of evidence uh, to try and sort of preempt some pretty significant change from Congress. President Ford issues executive orders to try and revamp the intelligence agencies. So they created the intelligence committees. Uh, and the other thing they do is they pass FISA. There are other legislation we might task uh, or sort of tie to it. But FISA comes up with 
the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, special procedures for getting national security uh, warrants, and our current debate is over whether or not that process was uh, was abused. But that never would have happened. That legislation would have never occurred had it not been for the church committee and its revelations. So you see it working in different types of pathways to really materially affect policy. You mentioned about church paying for this committee. And so I think one thing that people might also think about is like, why should my taxpayer dollars go to fund these things as opposed to, you know, things that might have a more direct impact on, on, you know, the average citizen's day to day life? Uh, we know what Congress's approval rating is. It's abysmal. And it's almost always been abysmal. It's almost always been lower than either of the other two branches. So does the public – what's the public view on investigations? And so uh, we went into the field with another survey in which we um, basically just asked the question about whether Congress should investigate um, and whether people support this idea. We phrased it in different ways, sort of raising – Benghazi and sort of attacks against Obama. And then other people were told about attacks on Bush and Bush era investigations. And what we were really shocked by is uh, across all the variants of our questions, people were overwhelmingly supportive of this idea that investigations provide a critically important check on the executive. Uh, The pendulum of power has undoubtedly swung from Capitol Hill towards 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue over the last 50, 60 years. Uh, And this is not a massive check, but it can be meaningful in certain conditions. Uh, And I think that the public understands that. So, you know, why should people uh, support it? Because the, the budgets that we're talking about here are relatively modest. It's a small amount of money, and it's a very small price to pay, uh, even if it provides uh, a weak but impartial but still present check uh, on executive aggrandizement. Right. And I know that um, a lot of your, your research has focused on this, how activity on, on these committees and, and, and investigations differ when, you know, both houses are, are united versus versus divided. So what, what does that look like? What, what have you seen there? Yeah, I, I think we all have pretty good expectations. We think that divided government should lead to more investigations. And uh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, so one of the first studies that's lo- that looked at this issue um, looked at really high-profile investigations and from the 40s into the 1980s and found very little difference uh, across divided government and unified government. And maybe it makes sense because even in unified government, there might be an individual who thinks that he or she has something to gain uh, from investigating the president to raise his or her stature and profile. Um, we take a, a much longer historical trajectory uh, and a broader view of investigations. And so we yeah, look at those 12,000 days, you know, over 100 plus years. And so what we find is there's a big interchamber difference. Um, So in the House, investigative activity is always much more intense under divided government. And that's particularly so in in polarized polities. So American politics is incredibly polarized in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. Then we move into a period where there's not as big of an ideological (laughs) gap between the parties. And now we've started to polarize again from the 70s mm-hmm. on through uh, forward. So especially in polarized eras uh, in the House, investigations are almost exclusively a function of, uh, of divided government. And you're seeing that right now, mm-hmm. right? I think another kind of like 
head scratcher for people who might not be as as familiar with this area is like why in some cases are there even you know house and senate investigations on on a particular topic so can you talk a little bit a little bit about how those two kind of intersect and you know why why it, it might make sense to have both houses investigating the same issue or you know different parts of the same issue yeah, so interchamber rivalry, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm a member of the House, why on earth would I want to let the Senate do this? You know, I want my own input and vice versa. Um, it's Madisonian 101, I guess, in that way. that It's exactly what we should expect, and we see it. Uh, and sometimes we have seen the church committee is a good investigation, or is a good case. There was a parallel investigation in the House, the Pike Committee, and it essentially broke down for being non-functional. Um, and so... Uh, you know, uh, that is one reason. Uh, by contrast, you know, the, the Senate, it's not like the Senate Whitewater investigation was easy on the Clintons, mm-hmm. but it wasn't nearly partisan and, and tough enough for Gingrichian standards. Mm-hmm. So the House, uh, you know, they wanted to, to be more aggressive and, and they could, given their position uh, as well and uh, how that committee did its business. So, you know, I, I think there are just differences in, in who is the chair of the individual committee, uh, how aggressively he or she might want to push, because they've got – that chair has ga- has control of the gavel, which gives them tremendous agenda control uh, over what that committee is going to do and how far it's going to push. And so, you know, oftentimes it could just be uh, personal differences really that lead to uh, one chamber versus another taking a lead or taking the investigation in different directions. Right. And um, speaking about about Russia specifically, how do the um, House and Senate investigations on Russia differ from the work that that Bob Mueller is doing? It's very interesting, right? And it's and it's a matter that's continually being litigated. Uh, what areas does Congress want to punt on and leave to the special counsel uh, versus, you know, where do they think duplication even can be um, can be profitable? So, you know, uh, in some respects, the, the appointment of the special counsel, and I'm happy to talk more about special counsels, independent counsels, and the like, uh, is really important given that we're in divided government. Uh, so even the Senate is being a bit more aggressive, but even there, right, um, Burr and other Republicans have an incentive to protect the president from the worst, right? They, they, should, they need to try and blunt Uh, at least limit the fallout, the damage for anyone that's going to be running in 2018 or 2020 with an R next to his or her name. Um, And then when you have Mueller, you know, you've created this other person with subpoena powers uh, who's directly looking at criminal matters as opposed to political crimes like impeachment um, that is able to sort of, with much, much greater staff resources and time and energy and money that he can devote to it. But at the same time, there is this position, uh, particularly among many Democrats, that we can't just punt on the issue totally uh, and abrogate our own responsibility of the legislature to provide a check on the executive. And so it's always been tricky. Um, One of the things that we talk about in the book is when we see a decrease uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, particularly in the 90s, uh, in the level of investigative oversight, some of that is because it's being picked up by these special counsels or independent counsels, depending on the time, uh, and sort of for Congress, threading the needle and trying to find the right balance, I think is difficult. But especially in a period of divided government, when the minority would find it much harder uh, to really put the screws to the administration, you know, that's a, that's a game changer. Mm-hmm. 
what are some of some of the factors that go into deciding whether an independent counsel or, or, or special counsel needs needs to be appointed? So, right, the process is just fundamentally different. Um, so, you know, the independent counsel idea begins after Watergate. Uh, so the Saturday Night Massacre, which we've all just mm-hmm. re-invoked, I think Carl Bernstein said that uh, um, McCabe being forced out was the new Monday Night Massacre. Uh, <clears throat> that's where we sort of have our, our beginnings, right? When uh, when Archibald Cox is fired after two people finally uh, resign and Robert Bork is found as the Solicitor General and he'll go ahead and can him. And he can do that because the special counsel is appointed by the Attorney General, usually, except in our current case when the Attorney General had to recuse himself mm-hmm. and it's a Deputy Attorney General. Uh, and so, therefore, the special counsel is an employee of the Justice Department. Uh, the president is the head of the exec- of the Justice Department as the chief executive, and the president has the full power to fire uh, the special counsel unless, in so doing, he's committing a crime and obstructing mm-hmm. justice. So after the firing of Cox and after Watergate, this sort of leads to uh, the passage in 1978 of the Ethics and Government Act, mm-hmm. uh, and that provides for an independent counsel. So the independent counsel, uh, I think... I'm trying to remember the exact procedure. I believe the Justice Department says, you know, we want to do this, uh, and the um, Court of Appeals for D.C. Mm-hmm. goes about actually picking uh, the independent counsel. And then the independent counsel is independent, uh, insulated from pressures uh, from the White House in that way or from the DOJ once that person's been named. Um, so the independent counsel, Lawrence Walsh, went after Reagan pretty hard uh, in Iran-Contra, right? And he got mm-hmm. indictments, Poindexter, North, Weinberger. Uh, and Republicans decided they didn't like the independent counsel statute too much. So they let it lapse, um, as there was very little support on that side of the aisle. Then you end up with Clinton uh, and the allegations of, uh, of improprieties with Whitewater and also the suicide of Vince Foster. Uh, so Republicans demand a special counsel. Janet Reno says, you're not going to believe anyone that I pick is impartial. Clinton counters, why don't you reauthorize the independent counsel statute? So first there's a special counsel, then they do reauthorize the independent counsel, uh, and the second or the Court of Appeals picks uh, Ken Starr. And so after that and that fiasco, the independent counsel statute lapses again in 1999, where without an independent counsel, hence why Bob Mueller is a special counsel, and why people are afraid that Trump will fire Bob Mueller. Right, right, right. Whereas if it had been an independent counsel, Bill Clinton could not have fired Ken Starr, even if he had wanted to do so. Right, right. And so, do you, in this in this climate that we're in, do you think that we'll we'll see uh, independent counsels kind of come back around again? It's interesting. The number of Republicans who have expressed publicly support for the idea of legislation protecting Bob Mueller, essentially post ex facto making him an independent mm-hmm. counsel. Yet I don't see any calls for by really by many on either side of the aisle for reinstituting the independent mm-hmm. counsel statute um so i doubt that we're going to see that uh but who knows uh, yeah. it probably has changed you know there's been a, a new tweet since we were on and, <laughs> right. and the entire political right. world looks different. right 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 we we've seen james comey's testimony last summer drew drew lots of attention um there's certainly been been lots of other examples of that so why why are these hearings sometimes open and you know why are are they they closed sometimes and kind of what what's the difference between testimony given in those situations sure so um the use of closed sessions has been the frequency of it has been going way down over the years the intelligence committees though are always the exception uh it's because of the 
act creating them after the church committee that sort of gave members of the intelligence committee access to different different folks within the intelligence community and different levels of classified information that other members are not able to, that they've always conducted a bit more of their business in secret uh, than other committees. If classified information is being, is being uh, handled and discussed in the context of the hearings, they've got to be closed. You're still doing your job, right? We're not abrogating our responsibility, but we're sort of keeping it out of the headlines, which will blunt the political force. Now, the Senate, uh, I think you might see a little bit of the same thing going on, that it works for both uh, for both sides. So, yeah, Mark Warner and Democrats might prefer lots of public hearings, and indeed he's insisted. He's like, you know, Don Jr. and other witnesses have to come back and they've got to testify publicly. Um, you know, that might be his ultimate preference, but his second best alternative is that we have a thorough investigation, and if it has to take place behind closed doors so that Republicans will agree to it, so be it. And if you're Senator Burr, uh, I think you do want to take your job seriously and you think this is important, but at the same time, you have to do something to defend your party. Uh, and this is another way in which we can sort of find some middle ground. So the Senate, I think the House is using it mainly to shield and the Senate, at least as of now, maybe using it slightly differently as sort of a nice compromise between the, the two camps. What do these committees look like moving forward? I think we're in a time where members of Congress have to spend more and more time raising money and, you know, those those types of activities. So where do you kind of see the, the future of, of, of congressional um, committees and, and congressional uh, investigations? Yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. Uh, if you look at time diaries of members of Congress, they're spending a lot less time on committee work um, and a lot more time raising money and fundraising and campaigning. That said, one of the beauties of investigations for the people who end up spearheading it is that it might serve their reelection prospects. It helps get their name out there. Everyone knows who Adam Schiff is. He's a he's a national celebrity now. Uh, and in fact, that's exactly what Trump just ridiculed him for. Right. You want to run for statewide office. You're you know, you're doing this. You're peddling this false narrative just to raise your profile. Um, but, you know, he, he can cash in on it, I'm sure, with a lot of big Democratic donors who all support uh, Schiff's work uh, on the House Intelligence Committee. So, you know, there's always going to be incentives for some members to engage in this activity. And essentially, what you have is a couple of people that subsidize the costs for all the rest. So I think investigations will continue to be an important way for members to pursue different goals at the same time. Maybe what I'm primarily doing is defending the institution. There's this institutional incentive, but it's real nice that there's this sort of side personal incentive, and they're, they're common carriers for one another. Um, as far as the future of this particular investigation, you know, uh, to be determined in 2018. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, we'll see, see what November brings for sure. Doug, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works. Thanks so much, Jenna, and thanks to everyone at the McCourtney Institute for having me. All right, so uh, we're, we're back, and uh, we're, we just wanted to uh, take a minute to kind of reflect on what we heard from that interview in terms of this long historical account where, you know, Doug basically said, you know, look, some of these things are endemic. There's going to be partisanship. There's going to be politicians who are looking to um, make a name for themselves. But there's also something distinctive about this time, and um, it makes it makes you wonder just kind of where where things are going to head from here. Now, there's a big difference from, say, Watergate. Right. The Watergate hearings were open and captivated. Yes. The American public captivated the public. 
uh, as I remember it, the networks actually took turns showing them during the day. Mm -hmm. And whatever network was showing them would suspend their soap operas for the day right. to be able to show. Or cartoons. I remember that when I was a little kid. Yeah. So your <laughs> cartoons were interrupted. They were interrupted. I was very upset about yeah. that. But I remember as a little kid how actually fascinating many of these Watergate hearings <laughs> were. But of course, I'm older than you. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's just assume that's what it was. <laughs> but, uh, and, and, and you know, there's something important that came out of that because you were in, you know, the Watergate hearings were about potentially and in the end about impeaching a president who had been fairly elected. Well, maybe not so fairly elected given what yeah, Watergate right. was all about, but a president who had been elected. Mm -hmm. And you are taking a big step when you start to tell the public that you're going to overturn the results of that election right. and impeach a president. And there's some similar issues here. But what's not happening is the public's not seeing any of this. I mean, when when Comey testified, people were interested. Mm -hmm. I think Congress decided to uh, the Republicans who control everything right. with these hearings decided mm -hmm. to stop having public hearings because of how much attention That's was being right. focused on Mueller. So Doug said that in his polling, he found that people are supportive of the idea that Congress needs to check the executive, that it needs to check the executive power or the power of the executive branch, and that um, congressional investigations are a important, valuable, and legitimate way to do that. And I just wonder if that is a sustainable phenomenon. And I just wonder if at some point the broader public is just going to um, sour on that idea. Sure. People will people will start to see this through the same partisan lens they see everything else, and therefore it loses its legitimacy. Yeah, I wonder if that hasn't already happened. Yeah. They're also not using nonpartisan interrogators. You know, so remember, in the Watergate hearings, they had nonpartisan interrogators. They had used a lot of staff interrogators right. of these witnesses. Uh, I believe this was the case, too, if you look at something like the uh, what was done after the challenge blew uh, up, and there was a big investigation that included members from both parties, and also people from outside, mm -hmm. where they had physicists working along with politicians. Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's figure out what happened. I, I suspect that would have been embraced differently by the American people than what has clearly just become, especially in the House of Representatives, a partisan food fight. Well, I mean, some of this follows pretty naturally from what um, Doug said, which is that basically the operation of investigations in the House versus the Senate reflects some of the, you know, Absolutely. design features of the Senate. Yeah. And, you, and you clearly see that, um, that Burr and Warner... Uh, feel this and reflect this, but I absolutely agree that it just seems like they are just swimming against the current here, yeah. and that um, that just about all the incentives are lining up the other way. Yeah, well, to put it in context a little bit, uh, House and Senate are different. The House is a majoritarian institution. The party in charge just basically decides what it's going to do, but the Senate's different. The Senate has always had more of a role for the minority, and there, too, you start you increasingly see the partisanship that has overtaken the House working its way into the Senate. So Doug's point was a very good one. Mm -hmm. It really is. It's just unrealistic to think that uh, the investigatory arm of Congress 
would not or would be somehow uh, immune from you know the brokenness that has reflect and the hyperpartisanship that has infected absolutely every other dimension of um, congressional life. Right. Well, but it's not yet in the Senate. Not yet. It's not yet, and uh, it is different, but it is moving more in that direction. Right. And I yeah. think that's the, that's yeah. maybe the takeaway for the whole. <laughs> The yes. whole episode is that it's yeah. moving in that direction. And uh, uh, those of us who are um, Democrats with a small D have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I think this, you know, I think this discussion is in pre- particularly important to the idea of democracy works. Not not necessarily because of that we're talking about investigations, but the topic of this investigation. You know, and it's one that I think we'll need to return to. And that is, you know, is there foreign interference in our elections? Uh, how is this operating in this new sort of media and social media environment? Mm-hmm. What, if anything, can we do about it? And what kind of risk is it? And right. I don't think that these congressional investigations are going to get us there. Uh, but, but we need to get. But there. we need to get there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think that's a good uh, point to end on. It's a lot more positive than we're all. That partisanship is destroying everything. I'm always the positive. Yeah, exactly. One. So, again, for Michael Berkman and myself, Chris Beam, just want to thank you for, uh, for joining us, for listening. Thank Doug Kreiner for his very thoughtful interview. Look forward to hearing your comments and uh, questions. Follow and topics so- for yeah, exactly. other Democracy Works podcasts. Yep. Find us on social media, and we'd love to hear from you. Yep. <laughs>